Good morning. My name is Jay Rosenthal, and I'm the Managing Director of Business of Cannabis. Welcome back to the Cannabis Daily Show for Thursday, February 3rd. If you like what you see, you can check out the rest of our channel, which has the full Business of Cannabis archive right here on our YouTube channel. So please do subscribe. If you're not watching on YouTube, please go to our YouTube channel, which is in the description, and subscribe there. For those of you new to Business of Cannabis since 2017, we've highlighted the companies, brands, people, and trends driving the cannabis industry, and that's what we look to do here every day. After the rundown of the key stories we're following, Narbe Alexandrian, who is the CEO of Rip Capital, will be with us for our BFC Live conversation. We'd love to hear from you in the comments, and always feel free to visit us at businessofcannabis.com, as well as through all of our social channels, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. A few event-based updates on March 10th, B of C Live New York Sessions will be back in Brooklyn connecting social equity licensees with capital. That's the topic. We'll be joined by Leafly and Vicente Setterberg, our partners for the event. A great lineup, which we will be sharing next week. And always thank you to the Williamsburg Hotel for being our host. On April 6th, we will be in South Florida for Business of Cannabis Miami. We will talk about cannabis retail, tech, design, and data. More on that as well as we go into next week. Uh, early bird tickets have been extended for our BFC audience. So please, in the description below, check that out as well. For our stories today, a few notes on some brewing battles. First, Deloitte versus Matt Lamers of MJ Biz about the number of Canadian jobs created uh, during legalization. There are POS battles, that's point of sale, uh, continuing. A U.S. congresswoman thinks the U.S. has the best cannabis in the world, and people in B.C. have something to say about that. And then everybody versus Aussie regulators. For our first story, how many Canadian jobs again? Does Deloitte's latest report inflate cannabis job numbers? Well, MJ Biz's international editor, Matt Lamers, doesn't hesitate to call out BS when he believes he sees it. The latest example, well, Deloitte's recently published Canadian Cannabis Industry Report on the economic impact of legalization, which Lamers claimed wildly overreports the number of jobs created in the sector. In a Twitter thread, Twitter thread Lamers said that Deloitte's claims that Canada's cannabis industry employs or sustains 47,000 plus jobs, but according to his own count, between 16,000 and 20,000 jobs were recorded in 2019. Lamers believes Deloitte added up the job numbers for each year from 2018 to 2021 to get its numbers and noted, quote, obviously that's a terrible idea because a worker employed at one company in all four of those years will be counted as four jobs. We will see where this shakes out, but Matt Lamers is never shy. We encourage you to follow him on Twitter. For our second story, POS battles are heating up. Yesterday, Canada's Green Line POS announced an integration with Jane Technologies to roll out new e-commerce and, quote, live menu integration in its point-of-sale software for Canadian cannabis retailers starting in Ontario, this according to a press release. This is the latest in a brewing POS battle, which includes Dutchy, which recently was valued at $1.7 billion, Kova, which was recently acquired by Waiter and recently launched Dabber, Vancouver-based Tech POS is in the mix, as well as FlowHub, which raised uh, $19 million last year. For our third story, a battle over who has the best weed in the world. Well, kind of. U.S. Republican Representative Nancy Mace, who is behind the Business-Friendly States Reform Act, told Yahoo News that legalization is one of the least controversial issues among Canadian, Amer Americans today, and among Canadians too, but among Americans, and that the U.S., quote, has the best cannabis of the world. Mace also said she, she herself used cannabis to overcome the psychological impact of being, a sex, being sexually assault, assaulted in high school. 
that cannabis should be treated like alcohol by regulators, not heroin. And Democrats have told her they will conduct a hearing on her bill, but some Republicans do not support her bill and see Mace as a non-team player. While we applaud her efforts to legalize cannabis, certainly on the federal level in the U.S., we would like to extend an invitation to Nelson, B.C. For our final story, Australia's MGC Pharma reports strong sales as it waits for key drug approvals. But slow progress on those drug trials and regulatory approvals are likely why investors aren't yet seeing the value on Australia's MGC Pharmaceuticals, which reported its strongest ever quarterly sales, this according to Business Can. The company is developing cannabis-related uh, cannabis treatments for Alzheimer's, dementia, and COVID-19. They reported $1.8 million in sales in its last quarter, which is a significant jump from the previous year when it sold a total of $2.8 million through 12 months. Those are the stories we're watching today. Join 10,000 others and catch all these stories and more in your inbox every day at 7 a.m. in our Cannabis Daily Newsletter. Coming up on BFC Live, we connect with Narbe Alexandrian, the president and CEO of Riv Capital, formerly Canopy Rivers. Riv Capital is a cannabis investment and acquisition firm whose mission is to acquire, invest, launch, and or develop U.S. operators and brands across financially and strategically attractive states to create a multi-state platform. Enjoy this conversation with Narbe Alexandrian. Hey Narbe, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, really excited. I'm excited as well. We've talked not on this platform before, but certainly I think it was during COVID, but also through Zoom, just not recorded. Thank you for making time. We're excited to connect. There's so much happening and we wanted to have you on to sort of talk about some of it and how it impacts you guys and how you guys are leading it. Sound good? Awesome. I'm, I'm super excited to be here. I'm a huge fan of you, huge fan of the, the work that you've done uh, for the industry over the last few years since I've been in the industry. So I'm um, just glad to be here talking to you today. Well, that's, that's nice of you to say. We should just end it there and everything will be fine. <laughs> I'll just cut that out and we'll just run on another day. No, I'm just kidding. Talk a little bit about... Um, where you guys are right now, um, and maybe talk before even that, sort of how you got into the industry, sort of your background. Yeah, so, so I joined the industry in uh, summer of 2018. My background was in technology venture capital. So I worked at Omer's Ventures, the largest VC fund in Canada, worked with largest government incubator in Canada as well. Just been around startups my entire career and um, just really looked at the cannabis industry as this revolutionary point in time in the summer of 2018, this is pre-Canadian legalization. Um, the, the the markets were the markets, but just seeing how Canada was legalizing, the US would be next, Europe would be after that, um, and uh, how, how much of a growth industry this is and how much of it looks like tech. Because in tech industry, you are just really guessing what the future looks like in, in an educated way. And the same thing in the cannabis industry, you're making guesses on what's going to happen next. And we've seen how this, this market has evolved, like pre uh, legalization was all about supply. After legalization was all about extraction. Now it's all about brands and who has market share and then push towards the US. The US is going through a similar evolution as well. So I really like that concept of nobody knows how this thing's going to play out. It's not a mature industry. So if you're in here in 2018 and you fast forward to 2038, you've had 20 years of experience in this industry and people are just starting to come in because now it's a mature industry and the stigma has gone and so forth. So it's a great time to jump into it. It's, it's really a compelling and an interesting analogy um, to that. And, and sometimes 
tech and cannabis intersect and some of the sort of uh, roles you guys play. But it is interesting because you talked about like, it was all about cultivation, then it was about processing manufacturing. Now it's about brand, but also about tech and emerging markets. And as you sort of look ahead, um, uh, like you know, the US, it's constantly in, in the cannabis news for sure, but it's also like fits and starts. Um, which can be frustrating for people following it along. Certainly it can be frustrating for companies that want to do business in all these places, but are there places almost uh, that you guys are investing or, or portfolio companies that are not, not independent of what's happening, but what can be successful if it never gets to more states or whether it fully legalizes next year, but have this sort of strong foundation to actually say, you know what, we are built to withstand whatever the ups and downs may be, whatever legalization looks like, but are in it for the long haul. So in 2038, by your note, like that they're actually still there in that time horizon. Yeah, uh, I think that's a great question. A lot of times investors, uh, specifically retail investors, see the cannabis industry as a short-term play. Like how can I put in 10 bucks and get 14 bucks in six months from now and make a 40% return on my investment? And um, that, that's not the way to think about it. Like this is a, a long term, a long game here, right? And we're, we're still very early. Like we haven't even seen US legalization, let alone interstate commerce, let alone globalization. And even in those stages, you're gonna see brands just moving all over the place and becoming mainstay. So it's still extremely early. You can tell from, the, from talking to regulators and talking to uh, and, and seeing in the US, even state by state, they're just very cautious and, and pessimistic on how to launch a, a, a cannabis reform. Um, and that takes time. That might even take decades in order to get to where we we have in our heads of, well, that's how beer is and how that's that's how cigarettes are. So it must be something similar to that. So um, but when we look at the when we look at RIV, like we, we've always one of the values that we always look at is how can we build something long term that outlasts any of us in our careers? Like we want this thing to be. 20, 30, 40 years of existence in some shape or form, whatever it looks like. And, and how can we make those decisions? And in the past, that didn't used to be like that. Um, speaking very candidly, myself, as well as many other operators, there were times where we took somewhat of a shorter viewpoint of, hey, like the markets are down, like they are in January of 2022. What can we do to like um, help the, the, the create awareness so that we get, that, that there's like a bit more of a bump in liquidity or something like that towards uh, what our stock is. And, and just being in the industry for long enough, like th those things just drown out. I think the, 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 the number one goal for us is how can we create long-term shareholder value? So to answer your second part of your question, we're looking at the US market. A lot of the same issues we saw in Canada, or we're still seeing in Canada, are gonna apply to the US. You have some states that are limited license, so it's very hard to get a license in there. But that said, that's a short-term competitive advantage over the long-term they're going to get margins going down because wholesale prices are going to um, drop because competition is going to increase. And it's going to be who can create the best cannabis, not who can create cannabis. Right. Um, and, and we're seeing that slowly trickle down to the states. And over the long term, that's for sure going to play. This is even before interstate commerce takes place. So when we look at the different markets in the U.S., not, we don't not only ask ourselves like, OK, well, we have a limited license in that state potentially. How can we, well, what's the short-term advantage here we can do for five or six years to push the brand in front of consumers? We're also thinking of, okay, well, if the doors open up and you get these California and, and, and BC bud producers into uh, different parts of the US, how's that gonna screw up everything that we've built, right? Um, and is cultivation the answer? No, it's gonna be brands. And how can we build brands now that can withstand competition coming through? Um, and how can we create a supply chain that can withstand competition coming through? 
So, and then we, we uh, anytime we look at a deck or a deal, we're um, sensitizing the crap out of the, the model and saying that, okay, well, we saw what happened to Canada and prices of cannabis coming down. We've seen what the listen market could do in Oklahoma and what happened in California. If we apply these shocks to the company uh, and, and if we adjust them for standard of living, because cannabis in Michigan is 40% higher than California is from a standard of living perspective, does EBITDA even exist in this industry? Right. And in some places you're like, well, government taxes you way too hard. They don't want you to make money. And other places you're like, yes, you can, you can actually make a, a decent amount here. It's interesting because um, it is like redoing the conversation over and over again, given these, your sort of words, shocks, right? Like how does it withstand? But, but do you think sort of being sort of having a Canadian lens on it, having seen, you know, pre you know, medical, pre-legalization, legalization, legalization with limited access for consumers because of licensing, right? To then like now, certainly in Ontario, which is, you know, you could argue the more, maybe the more, most mature market and most flooded market with retail in, in the country, like are those lessons easily applied or are some takeaways from that to what's happening in the States? Is it, a, you know, you mentioned brands, like, is it a, like, if we knew now what we know about brands and the importance five years ago, would the money have gone to different places? Like, how do you sort of anticipate that and role play that over and over and over again? Yeah, I think it's a great, great question. And for to answer it in the short way, I think most of it can be applied to the US. I think the one piece that can't is marketing. Um, what we found in Canada, and I, and I do agree that the money wouldn't flow as much back in 2018, 2017. How do we know how this plays out is that you really can't grab the consumer's attention if you're a brand. Everything looks the same when you go to the store. The tubes are the same. Everyone, but most, most companies buy the same packaging from the same suppliers. So there's not much of a difference there. The coloring can't be as vibrant as you want to because there's limitations there. And there's no advertisement that you can do in social or traditional or any of the media, which drives me insane because I see beer commercials all the time on Leafs and Habs games. It's so, impossible uh, to miss it. So it's exactly. And my kids are watching too. So I mean, what, what's that going to help them as they, right. as, as they grow and condition themselves? But um, but that, that, that's a huge miss on our end, because if you can't provide cues for the consumer to understand what brands are what when they go into the store, they're just going to see this as a homogenous selection of product, and it's going to be all about trial and error. So in, in, in the traditional CPG world where you just pump marketing dollars into making that brand stay in your head as a top five brand, so when you go to the store, you're like, I know that brand, I'll buy it, and I'll understand that. In the cannabis world, it's just about trial and error. And when there's about like a thousand new SKUs showing up every six months, it's really hard to even remember what you bought, let alone try to add more to that and say, okay, well, I bought Broken Coast a few months ago. What was that like? I don't even remember because I bought six other brands after that. So it, it's going to be incredibly hard to stand out in the market. Um, the ones who have are great, but even you, you see like the, the tables of the top 10 companies and they're switching all the time. And, and there's a reason for that is because consumers don't have those cues. I want to actually ask about that specifically because it does speak to brand and what is popping at certain times on like the top 10 list, right? Like it, it surprises me. So you can either agree or not. Like sometimes teeny tiny companies make huge inroads on some very specific categories. And not that it's a question, like it's based on usually quality. Like someone grew something great and then people find out about it. Is it also... Um, something to consider when thinking about US markets that there's like, I heard someone describe it, uh, a Leafly guy that we had an event, like 
describe it as a hype consumer where like the brands they buy is actually part of their lifestyle and they are like micro influencers, if you will, because they are like if 10% of the people are buying 50% of the product, like in store, like it becomes a, it flips brand very specifically on that, that type of consumer, which is important to think about as new markets roll out. Yeah, I wrote a piece recently for Entrepreneur Magazine that was published that talked about kind of the evolution of brands and to shorten it. Um, initially, it's a brand as an item, which is just like think of the deli style offerings in those illicit stores back in the day where you go in, there's jars and you just smell it and you pick the product. You don't know who made it or anything like that. The second stage was brand as an attribute. And that's when the packaging becomes pretty. You see that in the US with all these really pretty designs and, and, and beautiful packaging. Um, and, and that goes only so far. The next step, which we haven't really seen so many cannabis companies jump through is brand as a personality, which like it applies to your personality, what you want to do. Like I wear Nike because it makes me feel like an athlete or um, I, I wear um, Lululemon because it, it, it makes me think that I'm giving back to something. And then the last piece is like brand as a, a social policy. And that's when you actually buy stuff and they take a portion of it and they put it to like you're the... The, the, the charity of your choice or, or charity of their choice that aligns with your values. So instead of putting money into a charity, you buy a product and a piece of that goes to charity. So then you feel good buying product and you feel good consuming stuff. We haven't really seen those last two buckets in cannabis yet. We're seeing some fall over, like Cookies does a great job with, with, with branding. Jungle Boys does a great job as well in the US. Um, but that, that's the branding side. And I think we need to separate branding from product quality, especially when we look at Canada, because what we know and, and, and as insiders of the industry, and you correct me if I'm wrong, Jay, is that craft cannabis is the future of this industry within, within Canada, as well as in, in the U.S. for the most part. Mass producers cannot keep up with the quality that is needed for the consumer. And this isn't just the OG consumer. This is anybody that is in the industry for long enough to understand there's differences in the product that you get. And some of the no-name companies that you go after that might be trending on Reddit, or you might just say, oh, I've never heard of this. Let me try it out. They have some great products that you don't see from the mass producers. And the mass producers are supposed to be focused on just value product for, I don't know, filling up a, a joint when you run, run out of the good stuff. I don't know. Right. But, um, uh, but, but that, that, that's the kind of dichotomy that you're going to have to see. You're going to have to witness in the industry more and more. And it's applying all over the world. Yeah. quality you can't you can't replace quality yeah it's it's really and it's true and it's also hard like quality is hard to reproduce at scale across a country as large as canada even if you produce it in quebec that needs to get to bc the time lag between those two places can be considerable never mind the idea that it has to go through a provincial whole you know distributing all that but it is compelling to think about that conversation replicating itself 50 different times in the states and, you know, imagine interstate commerce, like it, it the, the playing field becomes very different, not, not necessarily harder or easier, but just different as things develop, uh, which is why it's good to talk to you that has a purview over lots of these things and the sort of three-dimensional chess that you think about as you're looking at the market, I think is interesting to think about um, because it is, it is complex. It is not for the faint of heart. There are shocks to the system. There are things that you will absolutely not expect, even if you've seen it all before in Canada. And like, do you, when you hear pitches for sure, do you, do you sort of espouse that? Like, these are great plans, but the best laid plans in cannabis get, can get overturned or upturned in, you know, a matter of days. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I have this saying to my team all the time, like, what if the regulators come and say, 
we're going to charge 50%, 100% more taxes. What are you going to do? Um, and I say these to the companies and the companies are like, well, they won't because we have lobbying efforts. I'm like, but what if they do? Like your, your lobbying efforts are proactive in nature. I get it, but they don't like lobbying doesn't re resolve anything, right? And in the grand scheme of things, if you, if you, if the regular wants to do something, they'll do it. So um, the, the, the difference between this industry and the tech industry um, is that uh, we are so succumbed to regulatory risk that we don't see the tech industry. You're seeing it a little bit with big tech, but for the most part, this is like a pharmaceutical type industry where the government does not want the licenses in the wrong hands, doesn't want the wrong SOPs, the wrong supply chain or anything like that. They take it slowly so they can see how everything plays out. They limit the number of licenses so they see everything plays out. And they're going to open it up over a period of time. And that could be decades. That could be a few years. That could be a few months, um, likely somewhere in between, because um, I mean, COVID is a whole distraction in terms of legalization anywhere. Um, so uh, we, you have to really take that with it with a grain of salt that we're not going to just grow this industry and not everyone's going to be making tons and tons of cash. Regulatory risk is always a problem. And if they see you make too much money, they can just jack up taxes on you and you're going to have to figure out how to work in that business as well. But it's not not fun. <laughs> oh, it's 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 a joy. I, I never like I, I love the volatility. I love the ups and downs. Um, I, I love the uh, the meme stocks. I love the 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 trolls and everything of that sort. They, they, these are all things that I love because it just shows that we're moving forward. And at first, like if this was 2018, and I witnessed this. I might have been a bit scared coming into the industry, but now being into it, like I totally understand the volatility is all part of the growth, yeah. and we need to make rules as a society of what determines a good company, bad company, good product, bad product, good marketing, bad marketing. And, and the more we do that, and that takes time, the better this industry is gonna get over a period of time. And um, I mean, you could probably attest to like, this is hands down such a different industry than it was in 2018. It's only been three years, which isn't that much of a time. Yeah, well, it's funny, we do events in New York and it's like conversations in 2017 or 2018 because all the promise of the, of the state is ahead, right? It's not, it's not a conversation looking three years back, what we did right, what we did wrong, what, you know, shifting market regulations. So it is, it is interesting in that respect, but then you look at like places like Colorado and the regs continue to change. It's not as if legalization happens and then it's done. It is this constant evolution times the number of states that are happening, times net new markets, attack, like all of those things, which is, you know, it's hyper-dynamic and not for the faint of heart, but good operators, good operators, and can deal with the shocks, as you said. Um, so it's, I'm, it's been fun. It's always fun to talk to you. It's fun to talk to you on camera, get your perspective, share it with sort of the business of cannabis audience. And thanks so much for making time. And we'll connect with you as things unfold. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Jay. Thanks, man. That was episode 21 of Cannabis Daily Show. Thank you for joining us here on YouTube or wherever you joined us. And please do subscribe to our YouTube channel. We will see you tomorrow. Thank <laughs> you.